You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The dreaded concept of lowballing on bids. Is it always bad or can it be used for good? Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 119 for September 13th, 2017. I'm your host, Chris Webster. This is the show where we break down common misconceptions about professional archaeology, mostly in the United States, and pull back the veil on a typical company and how it operates. On today's show, we talk about lowballing bids and costs on projects. So, close your eyes, relax, count to 10, and try to be calm. Because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today are Sonia in Utah. Hello. And Bill in Crazy Berkeley. Yeah, good morning. <laughs> yeah, we're recording this because this is going out in like mid-September, um, but we're recording this on Sunday, August 27th. So if anything's mentioned, uh, you know, that's time or news sensitive, that's what the that's what the date is as we're recording this. So um, there's some, some crazy stuff going on over in Berkeley on Bill's side, so hopefully... Uh, Hopefully it doesn't disrupt the podcast and he can he can get to the protesting after this. So. Yeah, exactly. Or get through the, <laughs> through the protesting so I can go have lunch after this. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, all right. So uh, we've got uh, we've got Sonia on today, uh, and for a very good reason um, because Sonia has been working behind the scenes on a on a resource that we hope comes out soon. But um, one of the topics in this is the subject of lowballing, and um, I'll try to. Define that in the most broad terms possible for anybody that's not familiar with that term. If we've got some new people in the field that haven't heard that term yet, lowballing in its in its basic sense is essentially underbidding a project. You know, we all uh, as company owners we bid on projects, whether it's to a client. Sometimes not like a private client. They they will always often have people they just go to, but sometimes they'll have a bid. But usually it's agencies and things like that. So clients will, uh, yeah, uh, CRM firms will bid on a project, and when you bid way under what what is expected to be for that project and you win that project um that's called lowballing okay because you're just basically bidding on this project to win it it's probably below your costs um so you're not going to make any money on it and there's always a lot of talk in the in the crm industry from field technicians and above everybody really and they come from different perspectives on on companies you know oh this project was probably lowballed that's why we don't get any you know rain day time or something like that or something like that. And that might be true, but um, I just want to, as we do on the Sierra Mark podcast, pull back the veil a little bit on this stuff and say, well, what really are the reasons behind lowballing? You know, you've got um, two company owners on the call right now, myself and Sonia. Bill has been, you know, part of this process, not as an owner, but as like uh, at the, at really the project manager and, and PI level doing these things for a long time. So he's very familiar with it. What can we talk about and, and and I'm not going to say that lowballing is going to be a good thing necessarily because just the term itself implies that it's probably bad. But I want to talk about both sides of this. What are some of the benefits to a company to do that that don't actually hurt their employees? What are some of the consequences? Um, and 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 is it so, is it something that should be a, a a business practice that's at least in your deck of things that you use as a company, or should it just be something that? Uh, that the federal agencies should throw out. And in some cases, they do throw out. Um, I'll, I'll say that right off the top, or, or at least they're supposed to. You see language in certain scopes of works and things like that where they say, you know, oh, the, they'll, they'll have a price, um, uh, a price proposal and, a, co- and a, co- a cost proposal and a technical proposal. And, you know, they'll throw out the highs and the lows. But, I mean, it's clear that they don't do that all the time. Maybe if somebody bid $2 on it, they'll throw it out. You can't do prices right pricing. <laughs> but uh, but if it's just low enough that they're like, all right, we'll give these guys a shot, then then they'll, they'll often do that. So, anyway, Sonia, I'm going to let you kick this off because you have um, st- uh, studied this. You've, you know, you've been a company owner for a long time now. And, um, I've and- done it. And you've done it so recently as well. That's right. That's right. So I gave my yeah. kind of definition. If you have anything to expand on that, um, feel free. Otherwise, we can. I'd like to start with maybe some of those common misconceptions, like I've got in the notes here, and just uh, and just and just talk about it. So lowballing is generally perceived as a negative, uh, as a negative marketing or costing ploy in order to get work or win work. And win it consistently and often. Mm-hmm. You're, I mean, for employees, for field technicians, uh, lowballing 
is uh, what we often go to when we think that, as Chris uh, Chris said, uh, you know, oh, why aren't we getting a rain day, you know, or oh, how come we can't just stay in the ho- hotels over the over the four days off or something like that when we're in a really remote area, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. It That's not necessarily the case. So lowballing is actually done quite frequently, and it's done by a lot of different types of businesses, not just archaeology. Um, it's frequently used as a loss leader. And for those of you with uh, you without a business background, um, a loss leader is where you intentionally lower your prices, reduce your profit margin, and uh, and and take a hit in order to break into an industry. So, for example, uh, a company could, if if they want to get in with a mining company that consistently that consistently uses the same archaeologists, but is required to put their stuff out for three bits. You could come in and go, you know what, I'm, even though we know that they, they want to use their, the, their same archaeology firms that they always do, we know in this case that they are forced to choose the low bidder. We are going to low bid this contract in order to win the work to gain the trust and confidence of that company so that in the future, when we bid more accurate uh, or uh, higher costed contracts, they will they will trust us enough to uh, to select us rather than rather than not. Mm-hmm. So it's called a loss leader. It's where you could take a loss in order to get a lead or an advantage on another company. Let's talk about that real quick before we go too far, because um, I think that that's that's probably. To me, that's fine. If you want to, because the ultimate goal is to bring your business into a new industry, and and the ultimate benefit of that would be your company has more business, which is good for everybody. It's good for all your employees. It's good for everybody. It's good for your client. You know, it's good for that. Now, to a certain degree. Now, you can't. Yeah, the 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 um. One of the potential costs to that, of course, is that your client thinks you're going to do everything at that price. <laughs> you know, exactly. I mean, you don't want to come in and do that because now you have to do everything at that price. And then the other side of that coin is if you do decide to make that a business strategy for a certain project, you have to take that loss. You have to own that loss. And, and by that, I mean, um, you know, you're going in, you're, you're underbidding, you're lowballing so you can win this contract. And oh, shit, you won the contract, but you can't sacrifice your your employees pay your employees benefits your your um, time in the field you can't start saying oh we're not paying drive time now or we're not doing this or we're not doing that you know we're cutting these things out you got to own that if you want that business you have to have the money in the bank to be able to suck up that entire difference that margin between what you should have made had you bid properly and what you actually bid and if you don't, then you shouldn't be lowballing. You shouldn't be looking for these lost leaders. You need to build your business up, build your coffers up before you can go into those other industries. And that's just good business practice. Exactly. Exactly. If if you're if you're doing that, if you're doing a loss leader or, or developing up a loss leader, and but you're compromising the integrity of your business, that's actually not a loss leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's uh, that's doing your business and your industry a disservice. Um, people are going to not trust you. Additionally, a loss leader is not when you underbid a contract with the intent to modify and modify and modify so that you make more money later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it can help, but usually when you're dealing with a loss leader, you are talking about um, firm fixed prices for individual uh, individuals in the field. So, for example, say you bid your field techs at $20 an hour for your loss leader. You can't come back later or you shouldn't be able to in this, in, in my opinion, mm-hmm. uh, you shouldn't be able to come back later and say, okay, now we're going to bill those guys out at $45 an hour. Right. Which by the way, uh, as a side note is a super embarrassing, uh, billing rate for, uh, <laughs> any of our clients who are listening. Yeah. Uh, it's a super embarrassing bill- billing rate for a professional, for somebody who has a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a PhD being billed out at $45 an hour is is hilarious. It's yeah. ridiculous. And and I don't mean that in a good way. It oh, is yeah. it is it is embarrassing for our industry. Now, frame this, you're talking about Utah, $45 an hour for a uh, a billable rate for a field tech in say South Carolina might not be out of the realm of possibility because the uh, you look at the 
Um, and I'm not saying that's good either. I mean, their rates are their wages are just lower over there. We should be trying to work to raise those wages. But as it stands, you're probably going to get as a entry level field tech, you know, between ten and probably thirteen or fourteen dollars at the high, high, high end in the South if you're working as a field tech. Um, and I know a typical low end multiplier they call it. This is another whole entire show topic and i know we've touched on this before but talking about billable rates we should just have a whole show on billable rates but um yeah we should because I, I don't know how many texts i heard early on and i started thinking this too but i was a little more skeptical and i was like well there's got to be a reason for this but i hear people saying they're billing me out at 60 dollars or 80 dollars an hour and i'm only seeing 15 of this damn the man and i'm like yeah they're making like five dollars an hour on you because taxes because Truth. overhead because accounting mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yep, exactly. just to just to make all this possible all those people that aren't in the field are being paid for by your billable rate and um all those extra things that happen and so just where I'm going with this, because this isn't a show on billable rates, is what I've heard, and Sonia, maybe you can confirm this, that a typical starting low-end billable rate that every company should probably start with until they get bigger and they need more um, is about 2.5, which means if you're making, let's just say $10 an hour for easy numbers, this would be really low, but your billable rate would be 10 times 2.5, which would be $25 an hour. So is that right? Yep. Yeah. yeah um, that's about right. <laughs> yeah. I think that- I think the mid, like if you have a mid-size company, mm-hmm. um, and mid-size in in our industry is considered what six to eight million or more, or in some cases it's fifteen million annually or more. Right. Right. Um, if you're if you're a mid-size company, you're probably shooting for a three point one multiplier because yeah. you have administrative costs. So, imagine this: you're out in the field making your ten bucks in an hour, but you're getting paid. Right? Who's processing mm-hmm. that payroll? Well, right. the accounting folks are doing that. So who's paying their rates? They're not out mm-hmm. being billable. So that's what overhead is. Mm-hmm. That's 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 something we need to talk about on a different podcast. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Um, and I've seen billing rates uh, much higher than that uh, for huge, huge, huge companies. I mean, I've worked for small firms, medium-sized firms, and large firms. Yeah. And 3.1 seems to be a center point. 2.5 is generally a minimum that is still profitable for small businesses. Right. 3.1 is profitable or more. So let's table um, billing rates because I think we could make a whole show on that. Let's table billing rates and talk about that um, maybe even on the next episode uh, or, or a, a one shortly after this. On the next episode, actually be a really good time to do that because after talking about lowballing, it might be good to talk about billing rates. So Yeah. Um, But let's continue on with some of the reasons why you might do this. And one of the reasons is, um, you know, keeping people in work. So you want to expand on that? (laughs) Sure. So a lot of times if if a company doesn't have a lot of work, they'll lowball a project so that they are at a break even or just slightly profitable, maybe just a couple of percentage points. And when I say a couple of percentage points, I'm talking two, maybe three percent. Most companies try to t- try to shoot between 10 to 15 percent profit, but uh, if if you're trying to keep your employees employed and working uh, through the winter or through a dry spell, uh, a a, um, a lowball project can't hurt, and it's not going to hurt you as field techs, and it's going to keep the the company going um, through that to th- through that dry spell. So it is. And it can be very beneficial. It keeps people employed. It provides evidence of revenue. So if, say, the company is going after a, after a loan because mm-hmm. they know that they have a big project on the horizon that's going to be millions and millions and millions of dollars with that they'll need to have you know, 20 or 30 or 40 archaeologists on, but right now they're really small and they need to take out a loan, they need to show revenue, consistent revenue. So, I mean, it, this can be beneficial. As long as it's not at the cost of the employee, and in most cases, I would say it's probably not. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there's there's no way that I would go back and and cut my employees' billing or not billing rates, but salary rates, my my regular employee salary rates, and even my field techs. In some cases, I'll even raise the price of a field tech because when I say raise the price, meaning give you more, mm-hmm. because I need good crew. So I, I'll take a small amount of loss in order to keep people busy and, um, and continue revenue coming through. 
Right. So, I mean, and then you make a very small profit. Small profit is better than no profit. Breaking even is better than no profit or, or not even breaking even. I mean, it's better right. than nothing. So the simple answer is yes, absolutely. Lowballing can be very helpful and can be beneficial to all of us, mm-hmm. the company owners and the employees. Right. Can it be can it be negative? Yes, absolutely. It can also be negative. <laughs> well, and that's that's what I want to talk about. We got about three minutes left in this segment, and that's what I want to talk about. Um, and then we'll talk we'll talk about well we'll t- we'll get into some other stuff. Yeah, after the break here, but. Uh, I know that there's some some people listening to this going, you know, lowballing is never good. It hurts the entire industry, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I would say that they're probably right if a company made that their business model. Um, if if too many companies made their business model just lowballing and, you know, constantly, because there are companies out there that probably do this. I'm not gonna obviously um, mention anyone or anything like that, but. Um, it's, uh, you know, there are companies that are probably out there that are just trying to either get started and they really didn't understand the business. So they're underbidding everything and, and they're rolling field techs through like, you know, like crazy. They're dropping like flies because people come in, they hate the company, they leave, they bring in a new crop because there's always people that you can hire. I mean, that's, that's the, that's just a simple fact. There's always people you can find. The quality of those people is going to start to suffer as you start to build this reputation. But, um, we need to take those people, those companies, and take them as an outlier because I think they are an outlier, and not include them as part of this conversation. We're talking about companies that do this occasionally when they have to, whether it's a, a business model to move in, like we said, or they're making payroll. You know, you have boom and bust years, and it might be a bust year for them. They want to make payroll. It's more beneficial for the entire industry to keep ten or fifteen people working rather than to lay them all off and then just do nothing. So. We've got about a minute and a half. Bill, you had a question real quick? Yeah, my just like you were saying about how that can be a way to break into the market, but maybe after the break we can talk about how do you get out of that spiral, right? Oh yeah. It, it appears to me like that become you know, it became a thing during the recession and now people are unable to stop the boat from going down mm-hmm. and lowballing has just become the way it, you know, I will we'll talk about it after the break, but Seems to me like the larger companies you were talking about just buy out smaller companies, continue that low ball path because they can make up the money with their other offerings. And, uh, you know, the people who really suffer are the cultural only folks. Well, that's and that's one thing we didn't actually mention that you just kind of alluded to some of the some of the larger companies. And I don't have direct evidence of this, but it seems like a business plan that people would people would do like these massive engineering firms where. Archaeology is just a small footnote in what they do, and they offer it so they can be a full-service company. But the archaeology department is constantly running at a loss because it's being supported by the other divisions. And if they, we all know that archaeology is one of the first things to happen on these projects. So if they can break into a new um, project, um, a big, you know, profitable project by just doing the cultural survey. And then get the rest of it through their company. Well, they'll eventually make money, and they'll make a lot of money if they do everything, especially if they're full service engineering, which means they're going to actually build the highway or build the pipeline. But they're doing all the steps in between. Then um, they'll take a loss on the archaeology, and archaeology as an industry suffers because of that. Because all the other companies that could have come in and done a good job can't do that now. And that's where I think some of these big engineering firms. Well, I see some benefits to archaeologists for them in that there's you know actual benefits and things like that. Um, and usually higher pay, but there's also bad things for the entire industry. So, but let's uh, let's come back to this after the break, and we'll we'll keep breaking this down. Interested in archaeology? Want to hear from experts in the field about the latest discoveries and interpretations? Check out the Archaeology Show every other Saturday, and let hosts Chris Webster and April Camp Whitaker take you deeper into the story. Check out the Archaeology Show at www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology and subscribe rate and comment on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and the Google Music Store. That's www.archpodnet.com forward slash archaeology. Now back to the show. Okay, we're back. And so we talked about some of the reasons why um, you should, you could lowball, um, you know, what, one of the, some of the reasons why companies do it, um, you know, what are, what, what can be the benefits behind that, things like that. I've got Sonia Hootmacher and Bill White back on, and we're going to talk about now, what are some of the um, negatives to lowballing? Because that's really what people see this as, um, you know, they see all the different negatives out there, but maybe some of these negatives aren't the negatives that you thought they were, or maybe there's some stuff you hadn't considered. Maybe 
you're a project archaeologist doing a bid right now, trying to keep your company going through the the pending fall, which in some areas of the country could be really, really bad. Um, but before that, Sonia was reminding me, Bill, you had a question uh, maybe on the 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 last topic uh, related to that. So let's do that first. Yeah, my question had to do with stopping the downward spiral. Oh, that's so right. If you, yeah. If you use um, lowballing to break into the market, which you know it seems okay. It, in business, I don't know, as long as it's not illegal, it's mm -hmm. ethics are flexible. But if you use it to break in, as you guys mentioned, then you end up being the lowballer. Then you cost X amount of dollars. How do you escape that trap? Right. Great question. Yeah, that's real tough. That's a really great. Uh, it's if as a business, um, as a project manager who's uh, frequently got into that spiral of lowballing, um, the easiest way to do that would be at the end of the year, simply tell the client uh, our costs have changed. Hopefully by that time, you have established a good relationship with them and you can slowly crawl your, your uh, costs out. Sometimes it takes years to do that, which is why this lowballing uh, using a loss leader can be very dangerous. A loss leader is not a default. It, you should not go to it immediately and it is not good for every single client. For example, uh, I recently got a, uh, a bid uh, or an offer to bid from the Forest Service and I spoke with the uh, contracting officer on the phone and he says, Sonia, honestly, this, this, uh, this contract is huge. It needs to be issued immediately and we're literally going to take the, the low bid on it. And I said, okay, so you've got a fast turnaround on a, on a proposal, like days. We're talking about days. Mm -hmm. Limited data on this, and you're going to low bid it? And I said, frankly, I said this to the contracting officer. I said, frankly, my business is small. We can't afford to do that. So if you want a good quality contractor, consider extending the deadlines of both the, the RFP and for the, the contract itself. And ask for a good, reasonable, competitive bid. And he's like, unfortunately, we can't do that. Right. We need to get it done. So in a, in, a, in a case like this, with regard to climbing out of the spiral, there are some contracts that you simply need to not bid on. And you need to establish your value. Like, like this contract I've received because we are a contractor of value to the client. They trust us. They know who we are. They want us to bid. They want us to come work with them. But at the same time, I have to maintain their trust by putting together a project that I don't want to screw up, frankly. And I have to tell them, I'm going to sit here and think about this, and I will send you a letter if I'm not going to bid on it. It'll, it'll be a plain, it'll be understandable, and you'll be able to present it to your higher-ups that say, our good contractors are not bidding because of these requirements, because of what you're putting us and putting our contractors under. So sometimes, if you want to climb out of the spiral, you have to either not bid on contracts, or you have to, at the end of the year, raise your rates. Mm -hmm. If it's So the Forest Service, the BLM, frequently, they're always low bid. If you have a good mining client or oil and gas client or another private client or something like that that's trying to develop something, they may trust you enough and go, okay, we can dig that. Raising rates at the end of the year is no big deal. Yeah. You know, so you, but it takes time. Yeah. And when you start getting into loss leaders, you want to use them occasionally, not frequently. Right. If you become, if you become well known as a lowballing company, your, your quality is going to be questioned, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a good chance you'll get fired from a contract right. more quickly. Right, your permit pulled. Yeah. You'll get I'm, your permit pulled. Yeah. I'm glad you said something about the quality yeah. because, uh, you know, like you said before, I've been on the receiving end many, many, many times of projects that were – I don't even really know what they were thinking uh, when it comes to the work. Uh, either they had no idea at all what we were going to find or they were trying to do what you were saying, pay payroll or keep us alive somehow. But I, I recall several times and, you know, I think some of the folks listening to this right now, people who I've worked with before were there with me in the middle of the desert when we did Herculean efforts. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of that was us taking the responsibility upon ourselves 
to maintain the quality of our work because other teams, I have a feeling, would have just bailed on this and said it was impossible or, you know, gone back home and said, yeah, we just couldn't get it done, right? Yeah. But I remember doing a lot because I had pride in my own work just to make sure that these projects uh, didn't fail. And then our reward was really more of those kind of projects where they were underbid, they were poorly scoped, whatever happened. And then once again, we were out there, you know, 16, 17 hour days in 100 plus degree temperatures in the middle of the desert, recording thousands and thousands of, you know, point located items. And, and that was just one example. So, you know, is it up to your crew to maintain the quality or is it up to you to, um, you know, responsibly uh, scope the project so that your crew can maintain those high quality levels? Well, you know, I will say um, one one comment on on breaking out of the spiral. I'll say two things. One is was bad, yeah, just because I'm going to acknowledge that it happens, and one is good, which is what I think we should all do. I, I think the, the the bad way to get out of the spiral is if you're not working with a, pri- a private client, or maybe you have this in your in your proposal. But a lot of these stuff with like, you know, with like gold mines and and things like that out here in the West, they're all there. A lot of them are fixed price. So whatever price you said you could do this for is the price you're doing this for. <laughs> it's it kind of, which is which can be scary because if you find more than you predicted to find and you don't have a, a clause for that, you know, for for over, for basically billing a um, a change order, then uh, then you could be in trouble. Um, you should almost always build in the ability to do a change order, and that's where I'm going to say this is bad because some people use the change order as a way to lowball the contract to win it, and then they already know they're going to do a change order, right? And the agency will probably do it. You know, the agency uh, needs the project done. They can't go through the whole process again. And if it's like the BLM or the Forest Service, then they'll probably do that. They might not give you another project after that, um, you know, unless you like, oh, well, it's because of this and this, and if you really BS your way through it, then they might buy that initially, but they've been around the block a few times, and they may, they might not. So they'll know if you did your research or not. But... Um, so a change order is one of the ways to to get out of an initial low bid is to just ask for that money. Then it then it ends up becoming at the price that you probably should have bid it for in the first place um, when you do that change order. And maybe that can break you out of the spiral. But I think the other way to do it, which is the way I've been promoting for a long time, is to just learn how to be more efficient. You can keep operating at the prices that you're operating at. Maybe raise them just a little bit. But we're all operating with massive amounts of loss built into our entire business model, right? And, and we don't even see it. We just want to be Indiana Jones and, and put our head down in the sand and go do survey and not be concerned with actual business. And that's why these bigger firms are coming in and just simply taking over because they have they have a business model built in that is actually being built by actual people with business degrees that know what the hell they're doing. And they're searching for ways that they can be more efficient. Now, some of these people are, are becoming more efficient in um, less ethical ways, like cutting employee benefits and stuff like that. That's not what I'm talking about. And, and, and buying used crappy vehicles. That's also not what I'm talking about. You need to look at your business practices. And this isn't going to be just a sole digital archaeology discussion, but that's part of it, you know, becoming more efficient with your paperwork, your back end, and your, um, you know, you know you're, you're in the field processes and things you can do. And then, you know, doing that. Now, of course, the downside of all that is once, if you did that, then other people did that, and then everybody did that. And in five years, it's just like an iPad is part of your field kit. Like when you buy your backpack, it comes with an iPad instead of a Camelback. Um, you know, once everybody's doing that, now we're all back to a level playing field with the uh, uh, with everything, and now you got to start lowballing again and find another way to be more efficient, and that that brings prices down. But I also think in the short term, it can bring everything up. You know, it, it can make us all better as a field. Maybe that's I don't know, I don't know if that's a pie in the sky sort of view or not. But uh, anyway, let's um, let's talk about. Who really suffers from lowballing? Because this, we're already halfway through the segment, and I don't want to miss that. Uh, I think the obvious, the obvious thing that suffers from all of this is, you know, besides the people, which we'll talk about, is the project itself. If if the project managers go out and the crew chiefs go out, and they know that the project was underbid, they're being talked to by their superiors. Maybe they don't know it was underbid, but their superiors are saying, "Hey, 
we've only got X amount of time that we can spend out in the field on this. Um, time could influence a decision on how you record a site, even if you're unconscious of that fact. If you're constantly being told by your leadership, no time, no time, no time, no time, get out of the field, get this done, get this done, then you'll get 3.30-itis, you know, and everybody knows exactly what that means. It's 3.30, you're like, oh, is this a site or not? Well, it's probably not because this and this and this, and now you just saved yourself two hours of recording time. But it actually is a site, and you should fucking record it. So um, anyway, so that suffers. But uh, Sonia, talk about some of the... um, Talk about some of the people who will suffer in this that are in this chain of disaster when you lowball a project. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, and everybody already knows this, when a project is low, uh, low bid or lowballed, as it were, um, the staff is the, is the first. The, the field staff have to, uh, have to work twice as hard to get the same amount of, amount of work done in, in, on a schedule that's unrealistic. Yeah. And it, it's it, it's stressful. It's stressful. It's frustrating. How are you expected to do, you know, I don't know, if you're in the East, you know, 80, 100 shovel tests a day in, in uh, solid ground and not sand. Uh, if you don't have enough time, you, you, you really, I mean, unless there's some miracle and your shovel tests are like two inches deep, there's, there's not... And you're under so much pressure, and it starts breaking or or just destroying the souls of archaeologists. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good practice to uh, do that. I have always liked to think of a business, an archaeology business, as kind of a as kind of an equilateral triangle. If you put the pro- if you put the company owner at the top, that that owner, and don't look at it as standing on, looking at it, look at that company owner as supported by. Yeah. The field technicians and the crew chiefs and the field directors and the project managers are each a step up, right, on that on that pyramid. The, these people at the bottom provide the support that the company needs. You are important, and we need to we need to remember to respect that. Yeah, a company needs to remember to respect that. I mean, the the field techs, the crew chiefs, and the and the field directors are all the ones out doing the hard manual labor to get the job done. The next one is going to be the project managers. Those people are taking the hits. They may be the ones who bid the contract, but they're also the ones who have to manage it and keep it somewhat uh, somewhat profitable <laughs> if they can, mm-hmm. if it's not a break-even project or a, lo- a, a loss leader. Um, but they're the ones who have to manage it tightly. If you haven't been a project manager, I cannot tell you, or I cannot. I just cannot express to you the uh, amount of stress that a project manager is under to make sure that the project gets done. The thing about the project managers is that they know that they are at fault if something goes wrong. They don't need you to tell them that. They already know that. They're already feeling it, and they're feeling it from upper management, and they're feeling it from the bottom and the top. They're getting squished in the middle. So if yeah. you think about that pyramid again, they're getting put under so much pressure that you end up with a lot of burnout for project managers. Right. Some will some will start to move up, but others will also um, just crumble. Yeah. And uh, it, it's it's hard work, and it is something that uh, we should all we should all consider when we are sending our gripes up the chain. <laughs> the PM probably already knows what what yeah. what's happening, but. Uh, those people suffer as well. And then, as as Chris said, the whole business suffers if the project is not well managed. A lowballed contract, and I have I uh, recently I have lowballed a contract myself. As long as it is well managed, and the the crew understands what their tasks are and that they have sufficient time to get them done. Um, as long as as long as that project is well managed, everything will go smoothly. Or should hopefully go smoothly, and you can have a a lowballed project come out successfully and with respect on both sides, from the crew and from the client, mm-hmm. and from the agencies for that matter. So, you know, keep just keep these things in mind. These people are, you know, the the management suffering, you're suffering, everybody's suffering under the pressure. But when success happens, 
we kind of have to move forward and go, okay, that was awesome. Let's never let that happen again. (laughs) You know what I mean? Let's learn from it. Let's sit down, have a little break. Right. Discuss it. What could we do better next time? Do you need a couple extra hours in the field? You know, Um, what happens if a car breaks down because, you know, it's crappy, you know? Right. Uh, Or if you have a rain day. Yeah. And like any small business or startup, um, you know, the people that should suffer first are the people at the very top. Yeah. Uh, You know, it shouldn't be your field technicians. They're the ones that are that are actually keeping this business going for you. You know, they're the ones out there every day doing the hard work and and making sure that that you can put food on the table for yourself and for them. And uh, and, and if without them, you don't have a project. So, you know, keeping that in mind, like, for example, the the big Navy project I did two years ago now, that wasn't lowballed by me. But it was lowballed um, because <laughs> it was uh, it was unintentional. Because two years before that project even started, when we were putting in for this as a proposal, you had to fill out these tables based on the sizes of different hypothetical projects and what would be found. Like, what would you charge for those? And they basically came up with this huge amount of land, and it and it worked out into x number of these types of projects. And they basically just took what you said you could do that type of project for and added it all up and said, okay. You have no choice. You're doing this project, and this is how much you're doing it for. And in reality, it was probably it was probably about a hundred thousand dollars less than it should have been, uh, would be my guess. And it was uh, and it was tough working within that time frame. It was especially tough for me as a as a relatively new small business owner. I hadn't done a, a half a million dollar project before, uh, and I didn't honestly have the money in the bank. I went and got a loan for fifty thousand dollars to cover payroll. Which I was like, oh well, this will this will keep us going for the first part of the project, you know, in, in a little ways. That lasted about a month and a half um, of doing payroll, uh, and that's no joke, you know. When you're when you're paying out with per diem and payroll, twenty thousand dollars every two weeks, or you know, fifteen to twenty thousand every two weeks, that gets pretty tough. Luckily, I had a prime contractor that was working with me, and they were actually letting me invoice every two weeks and then paying me every two weeks, um, and. Literally, that entire invoice was going right back out to the company, uh, right back out to the employees. And most of the time, I mean, I was using those funds to pay for my lodging and to pay for the rental vehicles and to pay for all that stuff that we had, you know, and and, and I wasn't taking per diem. I wasn't taking a salary. I wasn't taking a paycheck. And I was just basically covering my expenses to just be there like everybody else. And I wasn't taking any extra to do anything with. Luckily, I have a, a wife with a job that was covering the bills back home. But, um, you know, that's that's where the suffering started first was with me. And I'm not trying to get any sort of like sympathy for that. That's just what you should do as a business owner. I don't care if you're running a coffee shop or if you're running a CRM firm. You should be the one that suffers first because it's you're the one that decided to take on this risk of starting a business and to take on the responsibility of starting a business and to run this out. So it's you that needs to suffer from those decisions. The Every every single one of your employees, the only way they should, quote, suffer is if you have to shut the company down. Now you lay them off. But luckily, we don't live in a business where people are – well, I don't, I don't know if luckily – I said luckily we live in a business where – people are used to getting laid off because they get laid off every three weeks when they have a new project. So, you know, that's not that big a deal for field techs to say, okay, I'm going to lay you guys off and shut down my business. They don't care about that, but you're just laying them off and they're going to go find another work um, because that's how we do it here. But um, yeah, anyway, go ahead. Chris, you're, you're absolutely right about, about that. And that's something I probably didn't communicate clearly enough. The, the company owners, are the people who are stressing out the most over these lowball projects, over every project? I stress out over every single project simply oh, yeah. because I'm I'm that I'm a high stress person. First of all, mm-hmm. I'm a company owner for crying out loud. Um, I must love stress, but I mean I I cannot tell you how stressful it is to to worry about my crew, about their safety. Right. About every single day, every single day, I worry about the safety of my crew, which is why safety is a huge, huge deal for us. Huge deal. I, I worry about making sure that they can get paid, yeah. you know, making sure that they can, uh, they have work, uh, if they're regular employees, that they have work after this. What right. can I give them to do to, to keep them working? Um, it, it causes a great deal of, of uh, anxiety and a, lo- a lack of sleep um, and uh, just an incredible amount of stress. And there are times when I just kind of sit down and I was just like, 
I can't, I, I don't know if I can handle this anymore, mm-hmm. but I always do because again, that's what I do, Right. you know, um, you know, I, and I, I love, I love talking about that pyramid and it's, it's not me standing on you as field <laughs> technicians and crew chiefs and field directors and project managers. You support me. Yeah. You don't necessarily support, uh, I don't know, my awesome cars, which I don't have any. All of my cars suck. All your Teslas. Um, frequently, I write checks to you guys that are more than my own. Yeah. I want you to know that. Your payroll is frequently higher than what I get paid. I and I'm that. out, sometimes if I'm helping you, I'm out doing the same job you are. Yeah, I mean, we're... We're we're driving like three year old Teslas at this point. Take pity on us. They're not the brand new <laughs> Model Threes come out. You know, I mean, we're we're driving the old ones for Christ's sake. All right. Yeah, we're you're, gonna... not, you're not helping yourself, Chris. I was gonna say my car's so sweet. I I actually broke the handle off the <laughs> the back uh, door of our minivan yesterday. Yeah. Nice. So nice. Yeah. I've got I've got two 2001 Dodge Rams and I've got a 2002. Uh, uh, Ford F-150. Nice. That's our personal vehicle. A 2002 for crying out loud. Yeah. And then I think it's like a 2012 or something like that. Honda Civic. Honestly, really. Yeah. I'm not really driving those great cars. Yeah. <laughs> everybody thinks we are. I don't live in the most awesome house. My house is almost 100 years old for crying out loud. It's a POS. Right. <laughs> most, techs I know have, most techs I know have nicer cars than me. Yeah. No kidding. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll come back, and um, we're going to wrap this up with some some kind of closing thoughts, and we're going to talk about some of this from the client perspective. So let's, uh, let's take a break, and we'll be back in a second. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high-quality downloads of each show and a discount at our future online store, and access to show hosts on a members-only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we're back, and we are talking about low-balling contracts with Sonia Hootmacher and Bill White. And uh, just so everybody knows, we do, um, just a little side note, we do a live show where you can call in, or call in, you can, like, message in with your questions. Um, we usually do it at 3 p.m. on Fridays, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, sorry, Pacific time on Fridays, on Facebook, on the Archaeology Podcast Network Facebook page. Just search that on Facebook, you'll find it. And I do that with Richie Cruz, who's in the room right now, and we're setting up for a Sunday recording, which we're going to do immediately following this, um, which, you know, you don't know this because it's two weeks from now, um, whenever the hell this episode goes out. But just know that most Fridays we're going to be doing this, so check that out. So you'll hear some sounds in the background, and that's Richie setting up for this show because it's pretty involved <laughs> with what we have to do. So um, anyway, uh, Bill, you came into this conversation. I remember when we were talking, you know, pre-show before it started, you know, saying, you know, ready to learn and ready to learn stuff, and myself as well, because Sonia is a wealth of knowledge on this topic. But is there anything that you specifically came in with that? either hasn't been answered or maybe generated new questions and something you want to mention on the show before we, uh, before we close this out. No, um, in some, I mean, I, this has probably been one of the most informational ones for me because, uh, like I said, I worked on the scope of works and all that other stuff, but I was not actually the one who was tasked with, you know, talking directly to the client most times and hustling up the work. So yeah, you know, it, it clears a lot of things up for me. I, mm-hmm. you know, for the longest time was a field tech, so, uh, or a crew chief or project manager, or whatever, I know about that being squeezed on both ends. Um, but I don't really know about procuring a lot of the work myself. So this, yeah, I learned a lot. Uh, I guess the only question I have is about growth. So if you're successful and you do really well and you've moved beyond the, um, uh, you know, putting in the low bid and now you've got several clients and now you need to mm-hmm. expand capacity, you got several employees, you might even have offices in different cities, you know, um, eventually there will be a point where you have so much overhead and payroll that it's difficult for you to be the low bid. You're no longer, that's not even really going to be an option anymore for you. Right. So, you know, where do you see what happens at that point? Well, um, I think, 
I, yeah, that's an interesting problem um, because if you get big enough to where you can't low bid because, like you said, your billable is too high and you're not you're not the lowest anyway, and low bidding for you would mean bankruptcy. I think you've got probably other things going on. If, if you're that big and, and you're not and your billable is that high, it probably means you've got other project going on, and that's that's another problem entirely that companies have. I worked for a company, uh, one of the last companies I worked for, that was. You know, every time we'd get a new project, if it was a sizable project and we're finishing up the previous project, they'd be like, oh, and we talked about this, I think, on the last show. They'd be like, oh, well, just bill, bill that time that you were doing there to this other project, you know, and, and move and shifting hours around and doing things like that. And I don't, I don't, I know people don't want to do that from an ethical standpoint, but when you're just trying to stay alive and there's no money left in this billable area over here, this little silo of money, but this brand new silo of money just appeared. Then you start going into that, which is its own cycle of disaster. Because if you keep doing that, it's like a pyramid scheme, uh, which we talked about. And it's just, you know, now now that project is out of money and you're waiting for the next project to fund the end of this one. And you're just in a cycle. So at some point, you do have to either either raise your rates or increase your efficiency or do something and figure out a way to make the money you already have go farther and 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 last longer. And that's the real trick. That's the real trick. And I think personally that the only reason we're even having this discussion on lowballing is because we have a bunch of a bunch of people who got archaeology graduate degrees in the late 70s, early 80s that decided to start a company because there weren't any companies and first commend them for doing that because they created an industry where none existed. And but the problem is it was always they were always behind. They started behind they continued behind and now we're still behind and we don't have we don't have like a mandate for company owners to be not archaeologists company owners i don't think should be archaeologists or at least somebody high up on the staff should have an mba they should be a business person i seriously could have benefited from that i had no business starting a company i was learning all my stuff you shouldn't learn how to start a company from watching youtube videos i mean i'm sorry you can learn a lot from watching youtube videos but you learn you shouldn't learn how to start manage and run a company from watching youtube videos i didn't do that entirely that's a little disingenuous i mean i did have a lot of like leadership formal leadership training from you know uh, from the Navy and stuff like that. And Sony's like, you watch YouTube videos. Sony only on a few things. And I really mean like QuickBooks stuff because fuck QuickBooks. (laughs) 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 So, you know, I mean, that's, (laughs) but, but you know what I'm saying? Um, you, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't start a company if you don't know what the heck you're doing. And if you can't, and, I, and I'm speaking from my own experience, like I, if I had it to do all over again, I probably would have done differently. I probably would have found a business partner that did have business experience and figure out how to partner with them to get this thing going so I could do it right from the start. You know, that's that's what every business owner, I think, says, because uh, I think if you look at most businesses out there, and I talked to a lot of like startups and new business owners at this conference I was just at, and uh Every, every person does it the same way. They try to start, and then they realize later on, oh, I should have done it this way. So I don't know if we can ever break out of that cycle. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I answered your question, Bill. I, I don't even remember what it was. I'm on a different topic now. <laughs> but <laughs> I got on a rant there. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, so, yeah, like uh, that's the next level that it's difficult to reconcile. And, and that's yeah. a lot of times the step where the company gets consumed by another larger company who – probably started off just doing, you know, remediation for, uh, you know, parcels that had dry cleaners on them and then expanded to the point where they were doing, uh, you know, environmental design. And then they realized, oh, well, hell, we can probably do archaeology, too. And so they bought a small company and then they moved on. I mean, I don't know. I'm just, I guess, throwing that out there. It seems to me like that's how a lot of the larger construction companies got started, too. They were doing work and then they got these contracts. And then the next thing you know, they're building the Hoover Dam. And 100 years later, they're like, you know, a New York stock exchange traded company. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, it's, it's totally conceivable, especially right. if you've, if you've done it right and you've, you know, chosen the markets that you're going to go into and you've decided to do whatever uh, business strategy, even if, um, doing low bidding was a foundation of some parts of it. Mm-hmm. You can grow to a huge multimillion dollar corporation. Yeah. So in the last, uh, in the last half of the segment, uh, which can be a little bit shorter, Sonia, um, you have organized your materials that we're hopefully putting out soon in um, in a way that you know focuses on different audiences, basically. Uh, and one of the yep. things you wanted to focus on in this last segment was from the client perspective. So, what can if there's any yeah. potential clients listening to this, which 
I, I would say even if there, there are a few, but even if there were none, I think it's good for principal investigators um, and and project managers, the ones writing these proposals, to understand how to do this from a client perspective. I think that's an incredibly valuable viewpoint for them to have, even if there even if there were no clients listening to this at all. Um, but I know that there are because I know that there's BLM. Uh, there's BLM people that listen to this and Forest Service people that listen to this that are our clients. <laughs> they're yeah, archaeologists, they but they're are. our clients. So yeah. they listen as well. So so let's what what do you want to talk about at that in the last like eight minutes of the show? Well, the the first thing I'd like to talk about um, is is more about choosing your consultant. Uh, I know a lot of you guys have to go out and choose at least uh, three companies to bid on your on your projects. Sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes uh, a client will send it out to five or six or seven consultants. What I want you to, to or what I want to encourage you to do from a consultant's perspective is evaluate the consultants that you're selecting. Look at mm-hmm. their track record, not necessarily with your business, but with other businesses as well. If you're a mining company, call other mines and say, what consultants are you guys using? Who do you like and who do you dislike? For what reason? Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that because they get a bad review from one mine, they're going to be awful overall, but take a look at their at their track record, take a look at their reference history. You know, um and then reconsider your low bid policy. And I know this is going to take uh, a lot of change internally. Um, because I want what I want to encourage you to do in this is take a look at all of the bids that you're receiving. Your most accurate bid for the project is probably going to be your your average bid or your mean, right? Mm-hmm. That's probably going to be the most most accurate uh, bid. And then take a look at the standard deviation. What what uh, what's the range there? And then what's within that standard deviation, whatever you select that standard deviation to be, what companies are within that? Um, so you might have, I don't know, five companies uh, put in a bid, um, and they rank, those bids range from $7,500 to a little over $45,000. Your average is going to be somewhere around $35,500 for a, for a contract, somewhere around there. Once you figure out what your what your your average is, look at what's close to that, okay? Um, and then and then also take a look at what their assumptions are. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to those details, because if you've got a comp- if you've got four companies that are saying, ah, eh, there's probably going to be somewhere between 16 and 20 sites in a project area, right. and your low bidder is saying, now nah, we're going to bid five, <laughs> we're going to bid for five. Yeah. That low bidder is expecting to come back to you and ask for more money in the future. Do you have the time for that in your schedule? Ask yourself that. Do you have the time for it? Pay attention to the details. How many archaeological sites? How many isolates? How, how many survey acres per day per person uh, are they planning on doing? Look at their technical proposal. I recognize that you may or may not have a lot of time. You can skim through and just highlight the stuff that's important, right? Mm-hmm. But look at the average, look at the details, and then be realistic. For crying out loud, if you've got a 25-mile-long 25, 25 pipeline that's running through a 200-foot-wide corridor in one of the highest-density, I don't know, uh, archaeological site areas in, like, Nevada, are you really, I mean, really, really expecting there only to be five sites? Really? And are right. you really going to to award a contract to a, a bidder that low bids and low balls that thing mm-hmm. just so that they can get their shoe in? Yeah. For crying out loud. Be I realistic. And you'll you will you will get a lot more respect and a lot more cooperation from your consultants if you are more realistic. I can't tell you how many times I've seen contracts awarded to to companies from out of state at $6 an acre, mm-hmm. $6 an acre. <laughs> That's pretty low. And that, that $6 includes writing the report. Okay. And, You're taking the entire contract amount and it's six bucks an acre. And what's a good price per acre? That's just so people have to reference that too. Well, it really depends on where you're at. I mean, right. But for you, like in Utah, what's a low? Eh, I would say, 
uh, you can get con- honestly the price per acre is not really good unless you know <laughs> how many acres are in your contract area. Yeah, I yeah. mean, if you've got over a thousand acres in a project area, then you're probably looking maybe thirty. The thirty to forty dollars an acre. Right, right, right. That sounds that sounds right. But if if you've got five acres in a project area, it's going to cost hundreds of dollars per acre. Yeah, re- okay? re- comparatively, because you've got to write the report still. You know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, per acre cost is really, really, um, it's subjective. It's uh, but at the same time, if you have multiple types of these projects that you've had in the past, compare them. Yeah. Like, what was the total amount that your previous 25-mile-long pipeline cost in the end, after mm-hmm. all modifications came in? Did you, did you come in? Did your company come in uh, uh, at budget, right. like where it was supposed to be? Did the, did the environmental firm come in at budget where they were supposed to be? Or, you know, did they keep modifying? Did they keep nickeling and diming you? Did your company, did your company as the as the proponent of the project have that kind of time available or was it a headache right you know right just be realistic compare things to the total costs of previous projects that you've done in your project areas pay attention to the details Mm -hmm. look at look at the reputation and the quality of work that your consultants are doing if you know you have a low bidder that bids seventy five hundred dollars on a project and estimates five sites and you hear through the grapevine that they're not doing good work. Do you really want them working on your project just because yeah. they're the low bidder? Yeah. Is it worth it if if some company comes back or some agency or organization comes back and sues you because you didn't do good work? Yeah, I got three words for you. Dakota Access Pipeline. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> now, I, I want to preface that by saying, well, I guess postface that by saying um, the uh, – I don't know what the situation was there, if they did low bid or if stuff was missed or, or what happened, but clearly something broke down in the system for that to go to hell like it did. So, um, all right, so we have uh, so, a minute left. So Bill. Real quick on that. Uh, yeah. From what I know, it was just a matter of the people out there, you know, the project was atomized into a million pieces. Oh, yeah. And then the people out there maybe didn't know what specifically to look for because they didn't actually collaborate with the tribes who would have helped them see things. Yeah. Uh, and so they ended up, you know, going out there and saying, oh, there's no feature here. There's nothing here. It doesn't matter at all. But having worked with, you know, not the Sioux, but Plains tribes before, it's not as easy as just looking at your handbook of North American Indians and going, ooh, that right there is a site. I mean, there's a lot of cultural stuff that if you don't know anyone or don't talk to anyone or talk to the right people, you'll never see it. Well, that's that's a good example too. In the last like thirty seconds here, because what when without knowing anything about what happened in the process that leading up to that, a couple of things could have happened. Perhaps they um, the project the people running the project didn't really have a lot of experience with tribal consultation and didn't think about it and didn't do it, or perhaps they didn't budget for it and they said, well, let's try to get away with this. They might have been just straight up forbidden from talking to the tribes. They may they may have yeah, and then it bit everybody in the ass. So, all right, well. There's a lot more that we could say on this topic. Um, I encourage everybody to, uh, if you've listened this far, then you've listened to the episode. Now go leave your comments on Facebook um, where you see this because we get a lot of most of our interaction on these episodes from Facebook groups. If you're not in the Archeo Field Techs Facebook group, go check it out because that's most of where this um, discussion takes place. And that's where we'll probably post it. Sometimes in the North American Archaeological Tech Forum, we'll probably post it over there as well. Um, but it seems like most of the engagement is in Archeo Field Tech. So check that out. Um, check out any, uh, I don't know what kind of links we're going to have, but check out the show notes um, for that at arcpodnet.com forward slash CRM arc podcast forward slash whatever episode number this is, 118. And uh, thanks everybody for listening. And I think we're going to come back next week with a discussion about, um, with a, a discussion about uh, types of defining basically positions within a crew. Um, and that might sound boring if you've been in this for a while, um, but. I think there's a lot that could be discussed about that because there's probably 17 different terms for field tech out there if you were to look at all the different companies out there. And people who are relatively new in the industry don't understand the language that we use sometimes and don't understand what all those things mean. And and not only that, but project manager could have 85 different responsibilities at different companies, you know, depending on what that company is, how big that company is, and things like that. So we'll try to use our knowledge and experience of where we've worked to help define those terms. So come back for that in two weeks. And thanks for listening. 
to episode 118. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRM podcast or you can tag at arcpodnet in your tweet please share the link to the show wherever you saw it if you share crm archaeology related items on twitter or facebook or anywhere else for that matter be sure to use the hashtag crm so the community can see and comment if you'd like to subscribe to this podcast you can do so on itunes or on stitcher radio you can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way don't forget to go over to itunes and leave a review of the show it helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. See ya. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.